hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Hello, and welcome to A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I'm Fraser, and I'm joined today by Sai. Say hi, Sai. And Joe, the owner of the podcast. Say hi, Joe. Hello. So, gentlemen, where did we leave our dear um, listeners yesterday? Doctor, the TARDIS, it's gone. Yes. (laughs) It yeah. has gone. It hasn't though, has it? <laughs> it's still there. We didn't talk about this much today because we're talking about much more interesting things, but the cliffhanger um, comes along, the canine blows out the lights, Dr. Romana run down a corridor um, to find the TARDIS has disappeared. It's vanished into thin air. So but, what do think cliffhanger is going to resolve? Uh, he's like, oh, well, the rubble's just fallen on it. Oh, well. But, 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 but something happens in that cliffhanger, which I think is terrific. It's the first appearance of the shadow. And so, like Daddy Simpson goes all strings in this really kind of scary music. And I really like that. So I don't think I don't think that's a that's a, a complete throwaway, that cliffhanger. Well, should we dive straight into episode two then? But I had. I'm ready. Yeah, we'll be here all night otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I should count it soon. Five, four, three, two, one, play. Fraser, do you have a question for us? Uh, not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> I always start with a question. That's not my job. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I've got a question for you two then. Okay. And that is... Uh, this episode and the next one features K9 in a, quite an elaborate way. There's like an elaborate sequence in this where we think he's full of scrap. And in the next episode, he you know basically has a love affair with a computer. Is there such a thing as too much K9? Damn well isn't. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I think um, oh, this, this is the... The very best canine story there is, because he's treated in exactly the same way as Romana is treated. So he's treated as an equal all the way through this this story, and he gets his own plot line. So, like you say, he's got the scrap. He's in. He's got his moment of distress where the companion's in trouble and he's going to be melted down. He's got his heroic moment where he's. Uh, doing something that no, none of the others can do with Mentalis. Then he gets taken over oh, and yeah. possessed by the shadow That's really good. in the way that other companions end up doing. And then he gets his hero moment where he has to do acting oh, yeah. and, and transport the doctor and tracks around. And that's phenomenal. <laughs> do you remember John Lee's and he like, clears his throat and goes... <laughs> The Doctor and Drax have been killed. <laughs> it's so funny. And it, yeah, it's just brilliant. He's treated exactly like the second lead or the third or sort of joint companion, probably for the only time ever, I think, to this extent. And I don't think the character of K-9 is ever treated with quite as much seriousness or, or depth again after this. Yeah, he just kind of gets carried around in the creature from the pit, doesn't he? He's like a portable, mm-hmm. very bulky gun. 
But I know very, very well, uh, Cy, what you think about Keller, because we talked about this a couple of times. We did. Fraser, where do you fall with K9? I think K9, it depends how he's, how he's written. I mean, obviously, like in this story, you know, he's, he's like Cy says, he's, he's taken part, he has actually put something to the story as a, as a companion, you know, without K9, who's going to talk to the computer? Um, you know, that sort of thing. I think in the, the stories where he is just literally picked up and carried around so you can shoot something, then what's the point of that? So do you, you think know? it's all a matter of utilising him well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's the same with any sort of companion as, as well, isn't it? But there's, there's, there's like a contingent of fandom that will say that Doctor Who should never have had like a cute robot. Yeah, but they weren't the they weren't the people who were like me coming into Doctor Who age four and just falling completely and utterly in love with him. It wasn't designed to appeal to twenty year olds. It was designed to appeal to the uh, to the low end of the viewing audience. What should we quote? Low end, sorry, not the low end. <laughs> we should Come quote um, Lala Ward when she says, "What is it?" Um, you know, children loved canine and 15-year-old nerds didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Let's face it, though, there's a contingent of Doctor Who fans who are going to not like anything. You know, there's a contingent oh, of Doctor sure. Who fans who are going to say, well, the Doctor should never be played by a, an elderly gentleman with flowing white hair. And can I tell you, right, I, I um, did a commentary with somebody the other day who said something very profound about that, yeah? He said, you are not winning by not enjoying this and celebrating the fact that you're not enjoying this and that's so true i've never really looked at it that way before and and the people that truly celebrate hating on it and those people that then buy into that and subscribe to those what channels or whatever they are they're not winning at life are they i tell you i I tell you what reminds me of um is you know back in the day when i used to follow the football i don't follow as much nowadays but you know i did used to have a season ticket for uh, Newcastle United, um, yeah. Um, so you know, back in the day, we used to sit. You have a season ticket. We have the same seats every day, every week even. Um, and we had a guy for one season that sat behind us and did nothing but complain the whole time. Really? He could be winning four nil, and this guy behind would be livid that we weren't trying to find score with him. You know, it was the time when um, Bobby Robson was my manager. It was with Golden Era. You know. Second best manager, apart from Kevin Keegan, that I've had in my lifetime as managing Newcastle. Oh my god, I'm literally I'm salivating over this football talk. Keep going. And but this guy, you know, like week in, week out, he was coming and he just was slate about everything. It got I haven't turned around one day and just told him, you know, if you're not enjoying it, mate, go home. Yeah, fuck off. (laughs) Don't don't sit here and you know, slate the team, you're not you're not contributing anything, just Cool. But then it went a step further, didn't it? Like money, he's paid good money because you know season tickets aren't cheap. You're talking about a good five hundred pounds that he paid up his money to come along and not enjoy something week after week. He's not enjoying it week after week. It's crazy. Why spend the time? So all these sort of like NMDs and you know people on YouTube with all these videos to say if you don't enjoy it, go and watch something else. Yeah. You know, and stop yeah, having an I, opinion about I, other people enjoying it. You know, like. I, yeah, I saw someone on Twitter last week who was obviously doing their their big run through of Doctor Who, and he was rating the key to time, and it was 
Not out of 10. One out of 10. No redeeming features to this. I don't understand why anyone would like this crap. Oh, it's just rubbish. And I'm just thinking, no, it's not. You're just not looking at it in the right way. Nothing is irredeemable, is it? No. Time Lash isn't irredeemable, for God's sakes. I'm, I'm very... Yeah, Time Lash, definitely. Time Flight. Yeah, I'm waiting to hear that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but sorry, think... you were... You, you what no you did you didn't watch this on, on i didn't know this was just before i started watching so but were you aware of dwas at the time because i know there no. was there was a push against this era wasn't there at the time oh absolutely I, um when i sort of um sort of in my teens when i started getting um fanzines and stuff um from the local comic shop and things like that um I remember it was around the 25th anniversary and DWB did um, a voyage through 25 years, which was a big thing. And they got a prominent fan to write about each year of Doctor Who. Which fans? And I can't remember which fans did what, apart from Gary Russell writing a brilliant review of season 21 written okay. by the Valiard, which was awesome. Yeah going to find out his evidence for um for the trial and saying oh no i don't want davison but then colin comes in and says yeah this would be a worthy answer and that was that that was great but again it was always no why are we watching this fandom hates this there's no nothing in great in season 17 it's too silly tom baker's ridiculous and over the top and actually i think watching through the williams era as i've done many times because it's my favorite tom baker is surprisingly subtle a lot more often than you think people pick on the big moments like oh my arms my legs my everything where he goes over the top and okay most of the horns of nine on to be fair but they're not watching what he's doing the rest of the time and actually his his performance is full of layers and he's always been King. I think I said this during um, Invasion of Time. He's always thinking about what's going to entertain the children, yeah. but also being true to um, unexpectedly true to what's in the script as well. I know it's always it's always said, "Oh no, he never read the script. He just did his own thing." But no actually, way. no, it's way. not. No, that scene that just played out there. Yeah, he had to get across that the marshal was a pawn of somebody's and he does it through a series of logical deductions and he has to pace that and he has to deliver that as if he's figuring it out as he goes along that's not someone winging it that's not someone picking up a script he's thought about that yeah and the, this scene here with, with him in the marshal is really interesting because you can see the doctor thinking while he's watching what the marshal's doing the whole time this blessed plot <laughs> he can also go over the top as well <laughs> but again that's there to push the marshal to see what his limits are and what he's about isn't it and to win his trust it's not he's not doing it just to be be funny it's character stuff mm. there is there is quite a few thomisms and yeah you know when he's you know he's the you know the clutches to the head and the arm gestures and whatnot but for the most part, this is a very restrained performance by Carmen. Again, coming to watching it directly after the invasion from time when he was very close to going over the edge. Yeah. Well, don't you remember? We all laughed when he went, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
so this this was a much a, a really different performance and it took us really back to sort of like season 12 um when he was fresh into the role and he was you know having to work to kind of keep his job sort of thing um and not the not the time the, the tom that you you expect from this year of the rampant ego and being the star and but like at this point he could phone it in couldn't he like he is the star of the show people are watching for him he knows it and there was there was a lot of that going on behind the scenes with graham williams there particularly while they were making this story there's um a lot of there's a lot of things tom handed in his notice and said i'm not working for this man again and then graham williams said well i'm not working with him again and um the head of drama had to step in and say, well, actually, Graham, um, I have to side with our star. He's the one who's getting the ratings. He's the one in front of the camera. I mean, poor Graham. You know, right? and, like, that, that is yeah. humbling, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I think things sort of came to a head while they were making this, that it was, it was a difficult relationship, but they got through it to make the next season, so. Tom Baker says in it's the documentary on the Logopolis set, <clears throat> and he's talking about Graham Williams. And I remember at one point he's got he goes massive eyed and goes, and there's a bit of creative tension, and I like it, you know, like, and I, I think he thrived on that, you know, like he that 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 brought something out of him talent wise. Yeah, I just think poor old Graham Williams was probably seems like a gentle and thoughtful man and was probably not the right person to be dealing with Tom at his most yeah at his biggest and his most powerful really. What do you think about this um playing out like as a series of dots on the screen rather than seeing actual special effects? Do you think that's quite effective? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's you know um obviously i want the money to do that so don't bother just put the dots on the screen it's um oh we've seen this before it's sort of like um like alien isn't it where oh with the dots on the scanner yeah mm -hmm. the scanner then goes off and he's like ah right okay so yeah I think oh. just, but this this whole scene it's just beautifully directed we've got so many sort of like tracking shots and there's tom sitting in the marshal's chair yeah so the doctor's sitting in the marshal's chair now um he is just like that's that's a nice touch to show that he's basically taking control isn't it yeah yeah and he's slumped in the chair he's not sitting in it properly as well but you've got like well, all, all the overlapping voices as well all the people at their concert and it cuts to their reactions like this mm -hmm. that, that's unusual direction for doctor who and this this line you have to do you um can you build me the weapon yes what is it peace oh it's we terrific it's so restrained and understated and how much does that sum up the doctor yeah that's his solution exactly perfect isn't it what it reminds me of is <clears throat> the second world war movies where you've got the war room with the planes being moved with little rakes oh, with little yeah. models bit fires and things like that and you can see them engaging with the with the messersmiths and and it's just like that but a sci-fi version of that so playing out on the screen with with displays so it's showing how how the fight's going without having to show the fights and i do think there's a lot of churchill in the marshal absolutely oh, yeah. is yeah there's a lot of very second world war rhetoric coming yeah. from him and the speechifying when he does his like videos to the people of us he's very 
it's very Churchill, isn't it? My uh, my political and military history is very poor. I should have pulled in my other half because this is amazing. But this was like almost at the height of the Cold War, wasn't it? And Bob Baker yeah. and Dave Martin specifically say it's supposed to be the Russians versus is it Russians versus the West, the Americans, the Americans. Yeah, that that was the idea here that that, that they were kind of like tapping into that. And in this era, that's a pretty serious idea. Yeah, in a kids' TV show on a Saturday night. Oh, I love when Tom Baker comes out the door now, just holding K9. Like, <laughs> I learned it from Harry Houdini. <laughs> <laughs> I know the. the sorry, was it the cool walk, uh, fire walk? That's actually. it. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. that's it. But do you think that sequence with K9 is a bit protracted? Like, it goes on a bit long. Yeah, it's just a little bit sort of unnecessary. I think it's. I don't really understand. Canine ends up in the conveyor belt. It's a very long conveyor belt. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of scrap metal. But do you imagine they're making heavy concessions for the children watching, going, "No, Canine, you know he's going yeah, in your I furnace." Oh so, yeah, just, it's just upping the tension a bit, isn't it? I mean, I'll, is he going to make it? Is he not? Yeah, it's fine. I'll be honest. In Toy Story 3, there's a sequence where they're in a yeah. furnace and that goes on forever as well. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, if you're a megalomaniac, the one thing you want is really overcomplicated machinery. And he's it. probably got this conveyor belt that snakes around the whole planet doing stuff. And that's fine because it keeps people employed during wartime. Do you? Um, have... Sorry. Fraser. Are you suggesting that Pixar and Toy Story 3 are borrowed from Armageddon? Oh, for yeah. sure. For sure. <laughs> it's written by an Oscar winner, so of course it is. Do you know Do you know what the best piss take of that is, the, the overcomplicated machinery? It's that scene in Galaxy Quest where they're in the middle of the ship with the chompers, <laughs> and she's like, why the fuck are there chompers in the middle of this ship? Well, whoever wrote this episode was a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, it's so good. I don't think that's her exact dialogue, by the way. <laughs> You're paraphrasing. And I did so. But you're I right, mean, Fraser. This is still quite serious at this point. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Marshall's kind of ramping up the tension. You know, the Xeon fleet is basically wiping out the Astrian Astrians. Astrons? I don't know. Astriotons, I don't know. Atrium, yeah, yeah. Atrium. That... <laughs> the factor is coming in as sort of like you know this this civilization's planet is about to get wiped out. Um, and so the marshals thought mania is building with you know the, the worse it's good, the more manic he's he's getting. And you know what's obviously now with with Romana and the Doctor again, we're seeing that that sort of relationship, that chemistry between Tom and Mary. With John John Woodvine, he does that brilliant thing of like barely restrained anger, and so yeah. you know he's ready to burst at times. I find people like if I, people I've met in real life like that, where you know their anger's just simmering under the surface, and they kind of let it out a little bit. I find those people really scared. I think he he's giving of he doesn't falter, he doesn't go over the top. He's just very intense throughout. Yeah. He, he knows how to play Doctor Who. I think that's what I'm saying. And I think he's, he's, he's built a really memorable character and a really compelling character here. Um, 
you know, Merak is pretty disposable at this point. Yeah, he's the wet hero, isn't he, that you get in, in loads of adventures. Yeah, the young prince or whatever. And Honest to God, you count how many times he says Astra in that last episode. <laughs> you know, and you've got Shap as, as the sort of Captain Darling standing. Um, there's no one else. You know, Astra's, Astra's away now. Astra's gone. We're lost. Um, Astra for this episode. Did you see the sequence there where he realised that there was something between the two planets and he was doing more like Poirot-style deducting? Like, as a structured story, this is like Terence Dick's good, you know? Yeah. Um, Going back to what Fraser was saying about the cast, this, for a six-part story, has a phenomenally small cast compared to Invasion of Time, which was the last story we watched. You count the characters in that that you meet all the way through. And there's about half in this. The guest cast is really small. So you've got John Woodvine. You've got um, William Squire as the, as, um, the shadow. So you've got Shat and Merak and Astra. And you've got Drax. You've got Pat Gorman as, an, as a soldier. You've got one more soldier um, who gets killed in the first episode. And the two um actors and that's it uh you've forgotten oh, the, you've the forgotten one white guardian you've forgotten one character you know the most characterful character of all which one mentalis <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but then going back to what we're saying about this being not so much one six part of but three two part stories parts one and two you've got is all about the marshal and shaft um, mm-hmm. Three and four is where you bring in the shadow. Yeah, yeah. Shadow. I'm going to correct you, Joe, because at the end of the, the cliffhanger, it wasn't the shadow. <gasps> it was the mute. Oh my God! Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So what happens in the shadow? Yet yeah, without the kind of see the shadows in the face, but the shadow doesn't really make an appearance until episode three. So three and four is about the shadow. Um, Drax isn't is introduced in episode five, but by episode mm-hmm. five, we've took out the marshal. So. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah, using your resources very brilliantly. And Graham Williams says that, doesn't he? In the documentary on the Reboss operation, the Keith Time documentary, uh, the, the overview of his era, he's quoted as saying that we were actually starting to write the stories to the resources we had available. Like, how can we do this against black drapes? Which essentially they do in the Shadows Lair in this, isn't it? It's all mm-hmm. very dark. Oh, this is good, isn't it? The little... The little orange yellow skull and the mysterious background and it's a it's a very small very cheap set but it really works the lighting is phenomenal isn't it like yeah i think they were lucky i think if you get a really atmospheric lighting director on doctor who you're very lucky and this guy knows what he's doing yeah and you've got again michael hayes doing whatever he can to make this studio-bound six-episode story with a tiny bit of filming. There's literally just the conveyor belt scenes that we've had. So that's done. So he hasn't even got the benefit of some sets being on film or whatever. This is really, really studio-bound. He's not overly complimentary about this in the documentary about him. 
but it's not the script that he's not. He just says that there was like a, it, it, there was a lot to do and a lot of effects work, and there is a ton of effects work in this um, with relatively little money. Oh no, we're heading up to that cliffhanger. We are <laughs> get some of Mary Tam's most phenomenal acting ever. No, I that's, love a Mary Tam cliffhanger. That's the end of Power of Crow episode one, where she's just like, well, ah, ah. <laughs> she's not a very convincing screamer. It has to be said. No, and I don't know if she's kind of built for the cliffhanger acting. You know, no. <clears throat> She sort of turns around and is like, who are you talking to? Like, it was a trip, K9. I can get through that door. But again, this I feel like this is a cliffhanger geared at kids. Yeah. It's being very overly kind of ex- it's explaining itself very clearly in what's going on. But you get a beautiful cliffhanger uh, cliffhanger close-up of Mary Tam there looking particularly beautiful. Fraser, do you object? Um, no, I'm not going to object to a nice close for Mary Tam, but it's it's another cliffhanger that's it's it's not really hanging. <laughs> no, I was, <laughs> and you, I'm going to say you've said before, Fraser, that the best cliffhangers, and I think Joe said this as well, are the ones where it's the turning point in the plot, where it takes you somewhere completely different. And these two so far have just been random pauses of jeopardy. I mean. Yeah. For me, a cliffhanger is, is something that gets you watching the show again the next week. That's that's what I always, you know, come down to a cliffhanger is, is am I, has that that peril or whatever's happened in that closing um, scene, has that made me want to watch next week's episode? And that one... Can, I, can I agree and disagree with both of you? Because I yeah. think... You're right, Fraser, in the fact that it's, they're not especially well... Well, they're not badly executed, but they're, they're kind of bland. But, sorry, I think they do hinge the plot. Like, the first one introduces the mutes, and the second one, it takes the Doctor to Astrios. So we're going... We are okay. going in another direction, you know? It's, I mean, it's... You know, it's, it's a programme, it's called Doctor Who, so you know that the Doctor is going to be fine at you know, five minutes into the start of the next episode. So your cliffhanger has to be like, well, how is he going to get out of this one? You know, it's um, sort of um, Stolen Earth being the, the classic example of that. Oh, jeez, yeah. You know, the tenants get shot by the Dalek and starts regenerating, and then Russell T. Davis puts up, wait, continue. And I literally sat there and went, oh, oh wait, man. You can't leave us with that. <laughs> Are you trying to suggest that you couldn't put up a massive to be continued at the end of that? We just watched. <laughs> How often have we seen the doctor just be taken off by guards somewhere? Yeah. Really, it's uh, there. Are, is there is there one in this story that is like worthy of note? Episode five. Episode five is is brilliant. What's episode five? No! No! Welcome back to uh, Hampstead with a Blunt Penknife. Uh, possibly the the most glorious times in my life. I am here with the magnificent Simon Hart. Say hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Say hello, Fraser. 
Hello, Fraser. Oh, man. Just as a complete side note, and it's very self-indulgent, but I completely adore these guys, and doing this with them is literally one of the biggest pleasures of my life at the moment. Um, but I'm going to move on from being indulgent and say, guys, I've got a question for you. Uh, <laughs> um, do you think, I think um, parts of this story, uh, they are trying to tap into horror parts of this story certainly the skull the shadow do you think that the horror elements of the graham williams era are as effective as what's been and what is to come or no or not i am going to say no oh i think what we've had before with the hinchcliffe era um, in terms of things like the pyramids of Mars and the Queen of Morbius, is is the quintessential horror Doctor Who. If you want, you know, your, your horror, you go gothic, you go the hinge bit. Couple of Graham Williams, your horror. Then we're going to see this. Um, we're going to talk about this a lot more in sort of episode four, five, six, and three. It's very more Hammer. It's very more of a jokey type of, of horror. Um, so it depends whether you like your horror to be a little bit comedy, a little bit jokey, or whether you actually want it to be horrific, I suppose. Sorry. I agree with Fraser, and I think um, Graham Williams was put in a really difficult position, that he was under scrutiny, and he came into the job with the one proviso, don't upset Mary Whitehouse again. <clears throat> Take the horror out. And... There's a whole series of memos you see through this era from Graham MacDonald, who's the head of Serials and Series, saying, take this out. This is too horrific. That shot of the knife, got to go. Don't do this. Don't do that. We're not having this. We're not, we're not going there. And I think he's under greater scrutiny than any producer of Doctor Who up to this point has ever been. He's not got the freedom to do that stuff. When he does do it, in Image of the Fendal and Horror of Fang Rock and Stones of Blood, it's very effective, but it's very different to how it's been done. It's kind of neutered, I think, in a lot of ways. They can't push it the way that Philip Hinchcliffe did, but I think those bits still work. Really interesting answers. Thanks, guys. Um, I... I... God, I'm not going to agree and disagree. I keep doing this with you guys. Um, but I, 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 I do think there's some really interesting conceptual horror in Graham Williams' time. Uh, so it's not over, it's not like visceral horror, like, I don't know, people being pumped into the garden or being strangled by mummy tits or whatever, you know, hinge did. <laughs> um, but it's like, I'm um, sorry, it's, that does happen, right? It does. It really yeah. does. What are you laughing for then? <laughs> um you've such a great turn of phrase that's why thank you um but i think like ideas like in the pirate planet of entire worlds being you know uh, devoured um things like that i think that they're they're really like when you think about those ideas they're really really scary um but i think maybe that's as an adult uh, i 
I, I'm more thoughtful about what I'm watching. And as a child, you're probably sitting there watching it going, well, you know, where are the mummy tits? You know, like, I'm used to this, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, as a four-year-old, I found Doctor Who terrifying. I found um, the Daleks and Destiny of the Daleks and Daphros scary. I found Scaroff particularly terrifying, particularly the cliffhanger of pulling off his face and there being a horrible monster underneath. And I can't actually, I can't remember whether I found the, the mandrels and the nightmon particularly terrifying. But Doctor Who was always scary and fun. What about yeah. the 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 marshman coming out of the water? Did that oh, Roger! Oh, that was yeah, that was really really. Oh my god! My sister still has um has a thing about well, she has a thing about spiders, and she still remembers the spiders in the melons, and coming out that. And the spiders scuttling across the floor. That really, really terrified her. I feel like we're tapping into something here. Um, so before we mm -hmm. kick in, Fraser, I just want to ask you, has Doctor Who ever scared you? Like, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. wow, tell me. Remembrance <laughs> uh, of the Daleks, episode one, the cliffhanger. Um, classic cliffhanger, as we discussed yesterday. Um, the Dalek is coming up the stairs. The Doctor's at the top of the stairs. The door is shut. He can't get through that door. That was... Shit a brick time for me. Um, that was actually um, a story to go with that is that my grandma was looking after me at that particular time and um, my mum was out. So I was that scared of that moment of the Dalek climbing up the stairs and terrifying Sylvester McCoy that the following week I wasn't allowed to watch how it was resolved. Oh, yeah, maybe you say. Oh, it. no, that makes it even worse because <laughs> then you don't know what you've got away. She made us tape it, and um, I had to watch it the next day when my mum was home. Because obviously mm -hmm. it was like half past seven kickoff yeah. at that time. So it was taped when my mum was home from work, so at five o'clock, half past four, five o'clock, I was allowed to watch it then. Um, so, you know, I've got to, I've got a really, and that's a really powerful memory for me. It's, it's a really good one of my gran, who was no longer with us, and it's also, that was the first episode of Doctor Who I ever watched that. No. Watching. Um, so I've got that sort of like burned in my mind. It's like, that is mm -hmm. why I'm a Doctor Who fan now. It's because that Dalek went up them stairs and scared me so much that I couldn't watch next week's. I wasn't allowed to watch next week's. I think, oh. I think I've got two. Uh, as a child, I don't, I don't think I'll ever, ever get over Sister Lamont from Terror of the Zygons <laughs> and that blood down her arm when she's walking through the forest. And to this day, if someone comes up to me in a hospital and says you're going to be very well taken care of, <laughs> I'm terrified. <laughs> um, uh, and I think as an adult, the thing that scared me the most was, do you remember that bit in The Deadly Assassin with the samurai? And his eyes coming through the mask, and there's like a there's something about that image just really freaked me out, and I don't quite know why. Um, so, oh, it's nice to know that we've all been scared shitless by Doctor Who. Then, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Although I think I don't know, so I think you you got the best of it here because you were absolutely watching it like through the early eighties mm -hmm. as a child. Yeah, the, the yeah, the most terrifying thing ever in Doctor Who for me was snake dance and the mara possession of tegan was the most terrifying thing in my whole childhood i had a real thing i'd read a story in peter davison's book of alien monsters <laughs> about a monster that possessed um a child 
and was talking to its sister with with the wrong voice and that just terrified me and then it happened to tegan on tv and it was just oh no snake dance gave me nightmares that was the doctor who that really really more than any other one (gasps) (laughs) so it's nice to know it's doing its thing right like doctor who genuinely frightened us at some point Mm -hmm. armageddon factor did that frighten you at any point no. <laughs> I mean, I... <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, though. It could have done. It could have done. Yeah. yeah. It could have done. done. It, episodes three and four it went the same way as episodes one and two have gone. If it really stuck to the sort of powers of war theme and really played that as, as much as they could have done, mm. this could have been a really um, sort of psychologically terrifying story. Um, also, the shadow. If the shadow, you know, when we get to play the episode, we'll see the shadow's first appearance, and it's a very powerful appearance. It's a very powerful scene. If he had stayed that way throughout the story, I think we would have been a lot more scared of the shadow. But he does go very pantomime very quickly. Um, but yeah, if it stuck the course with that, we this could have been a genuinely gothic terrifying story wow okay on that note shall we skip into episode three well we better had <laughs> <Okay. laughs>